please be seated. Please open with me again to the book of 1 Samuel, to chapter 20. First Samuel chapter 20, we're going to take up, once again in verse 18 uh, through 42, we're going to finish the whole of the chapter. Let me remind you that this gives us the occasion, in the first part of the chapter, of David and Jonathan coming together, and David is in distress. He's scared of King Saul. He's convinced that Saul not only has it out for his life, but is presently Uh, making a plan to take him and to put him to death, even though Saul has already failed at least three or four times, depending on how you count the throwing of javelins two times over. And so David brings it to Jonathan, and he says, Your father is out for my life. And Jonathan says, It can't be. If it were true, I would know. My father loves me. He trusts me. He tells me everything. Nothing is concealed from me. And David says, Well... Will you search him out for me? And they covenanted together, expressing their love as brothers together, the prince of Israel and the coming king. And so let's take the word of God. We'll read verses 18 through 42, 1 Samuel chapter 20. Then Jonathan said to him, that is David, Tomorrow is the new moon. And you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send a young man saying, go find the arrows. And if I say to the young man, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Avner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now... If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, 
Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you or your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him, so that Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray again. Lord, we pray that you would help us to gain spiritual benefit holy understanding in the study of this passage of Scripture. O Lord, may scales fall from our eyes, ears be unplugged, and our hearts renewed. O Lord, at the sound of your voice, at the telling of your glory, of the might and majesty you display not only to your people, but in them and in the character that you have created within their hearts. We pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Is your theology practical, friends? Do the things you believe help you to interpret the things that happen in your lives? The passage of Scripture that we have this evening gives an account of a very specific, very confusing at points, occasion in the event of David's life and in the event of Jonathan's life, and it is one that apart from a mind and a heart for God would be lost in its meaning or in its benefit to you and to me. Yet nonetheless, we have in this passage of Scripture the testimony of Jonathan's heart about the sovereignty of God, that all things that happen are according to his will. 
It's almost as if Jonathan has, dominating his mind and heart, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer seven. What are the decrees of God? With its answer, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now that can sound like high-minded theology, really abstract, something that's intangible. But in the lives of God's people, it is an essential truth through which, as His people, we understand everything that happens. Without it, the anger of an enemy is ultimately meaningless and it has no spiritual benefit or value for our souls. But under this wonderful truth... And through it, we can benefit even whenever our enemies hotly pursue and whenever we have to depart from loved ones without any knowledge if we'll ever see them again. And so that is what characterizes the heart of Jonathan. And so I want to study it. I want us to see three things from the passage, verses 18 through 24. The first, everything must be submitted to God's sovereignty. Everything must be submitted to God's sovereignty. Verses 25 through 34. Only fools believe they can overthrow God's will. Only fools believe that they can overthrow God's will. Verses 35 to 42. There is great comfort in the sovereignty of God. There is great comfort in the sovereignty of God. And so as we come to verses 18 through 24, we are on the back end of David's commissioning of Jonathan. Again, they've made a plan together. David has requested it to go and to search out the heart of Saul. To search out what sin David may have committed. What sin it is that has angered Saul so much that he wants David's life. So much so that David has said to Jonathan, his dear good friend, If I have sinned, why don't you kill me? You plunge the sword deep into me. Why even take me to your father if I am a guilty man? But the outlines of the way that David thought that this could work, the plan that he puts into motion, all revolves around the feast of a new moon. We're going to talk about that a little bit more uh, in uh, the second point of the sermon. But nonetheless, here in verse 18, Jonathan is taking up the plan. He's agreeing there to David to do exactly this. He says in verse 18 to David, Tomorrow is the new moon. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was at hand and remain beside the stone heap. And then Jonathan begins to express this plan of how he's going to communicate what he finds. Is Saul actually going to kill David or will he not? Is Saul actually a deranged madman with no reason to pursue David or is it safe for David then to come? And we have this well, this very interesting method of communication. And I just want to say from the very outset that this is covert. He's trying not to let anybody else know that's completely plain in the passage of scripture and so there's this description here in these verses of Jonathan going out to a place we should presume 
was a normal, normal place for him to practice archery. And he's got this little boy with him. And it seems from the passage of Scripture that this boy has a job. He's kind of an assistant or a servant of Prince Jonathan. He's the boy that goes out with him at least in times where he is practicing archery. And as an archer, I grew up bow hunting and shooting bows my whole life. Uh, There's an interesting little uh, note that he makes here, one that we would never, ever dream of doing in the modern day, that he's going to send the boy out and that he's going to then fire an arrow over the child, beyond the child, at a mark directly on the ground as if he's shooting a target. The word here in English, mark, could otherwise be uh, translated as a target. And that he's going to do it not once, not twice, but three times. So Jonathan is telling uh, you and me something about who he is as the mighty man, the warrior, and the prince of Israel. And that is, he can shoot a bow. He's incredibly accurate. He has no concern if he's going to hit the child. He just doesn't want the child to take too much time. He can shoot three arrows by the time the child reaches the first one. That's the whole picture. He's not concerned about inaccuracy. No, he's going to put those arrows one after another after another like stacked pencils stuck into the ground. That's the whole plan. And it's normal. This is the regular progression of the life of Jonathan, a prince of Israel. Uh, It's not anything unique. It's nothing that would cause anyone any alarm. And Jonathan sees in this an opportunity to convey a message over a great distance. David, you go to that stone heap. I'm going to lose three arrows. You will see them. There'll be one on top of another. And I'm going to talk to this child. And here's the code. And it's significant and it's simple, but this is what it means. And you need to be clear about this, David. I'm going to send him out. I'm going to fire these arrows. And if I say to the young man, this is verse 21, uh, look, the arrows are on this side of you. Take them. Then you are to come as the Lord lives. It is safe for you and there is no danger. David, if I tell the boys to pick, the boy to pick up those arrows and just to come on back, then that should be for you the clear sign. Everything's okay. Come, come to the table, come with me, sit at my father's house, in his court, all is well. But here, verse 22, there is a yes or no answer to the danger and the threat of Saul for the life of David. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. So that's the answer, no, David, it's not safe. The arrows are beyond the boy. The wrath of my father is beyond me. David, you should run for your life. And now we've studied this. This is interesting. It's a unique way of communication. We should probably never duplicate it. Nathan and I should not shoot arrows between us. Not a good idea. That's not the big point of this. It is rather the response... It is the response to the possible anger and danger that Saul poses toward David that Jonathan characterizes and how he says it. Look at verse 22. He says, look, the arrows are beyond you. 
Then David, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. That is the practical theology in this section of the scriptures. Why would he say this? David, I'm going to go to my father's table. I'm going to search him out for you. I'm going to seek his heart. I'm going to seek your sin. And if I find nothing, then you should come back. And if I find something of danger, you should go. Wouldn't it be natural, in concern about Saul's anger, that Jonathan would say, then you should go because my father's going to kill you. That is natural. Or shouldn't he say my father is a madman or he is wicked or he is driven to a horrible fit of rage and attribute the whole situation, this terrible, life-threatening situation to the sinfulness of Saul? Because that's right, it's accurate. We're going to see that it is not only accurate, but it would be appropriate For Jonathan to say precisely this. But no, his theology interprets his life. Not his life having the interpretation of his theology. These things are rightly ordered for him. If David is sent away. If the anointed of God is sent away. The great man. The one the Lord has delivered. All of these things. The one who took the stone and brought down the great giant. If the Lord is doing this, and if Saul will come to kill you, then David, you can absolutely be assured that the Lord, Yahweh, is sending you away. It is according to His plan. It doesn't matter what Saul thinks. It's according to His will, not the will of a deranged man. It's God in everything, over all things. Everything falling out according to His eternal purpose. According to the counsel of His will for His own glory. And do you note that Jonathan does not try then to interpret it. He doesn't say the Lord is sending you away, David. And it's okay, David. It's really, it's really for your own good. It's really so you'll have a thick skin. It's really so you'll be safe. No, no, no. He just simply leaves it in the hands of the sovereign God. David, you don't need an answer. If you're driven away from this court, you don't need an answer. You don't need an answer according to your own guilt. You don't need an answer according to my father's sin. You don't need an answer. You just need to go because God is sending you away. That's it. That's it. That's all the answer you need. Everything must be submitted to God's sovereignty. And that is a statement that itself is inevitable. It is not as if anything can't. Be submitted to God's sovereignty. Even the idea of God's sovereignty is absolute. Everything is submitted to God's sovereignty. And you and I need to hear this. Absolutely, we need to hear this. Because the sovereignty of God ought to interpret everything in our lives. You see, one of the things that you and I struggle with, I'm sure, if you're like me, is a life that is marked by momentary or even repeated and long-term anxieties. Why do our anxieties arise? They arise out of a heart that wants to control things and always know the answer to the question, why or how or where or when. Jonathan's heart is completely 
at ease to simply say, this is what the Lord is doing. No more answer necessary. And how do you get there, friends? Well, I think you get there quite simply by considering who God is. Who is he? Who has he been? Well, up until this point in the life of David, he has been absolutely in control of every second and nanosecond of his whole life. David has been delivered, chosen, delivered again and again and again and again from danger. David does not need a commentary on God's sending him away. And friends, if you and I think about our lives, what a magnificent testimony of the sustaining grace of God that he gave us to a parent to begin with, that we were born without dying in the womb, that we were sustained in childhood and kept from sickness and illness that would kill us. That we were then given clothes on our backs and food in our bellies. That we would grow and learn. But more than any of that, Christian, how much more could we consider this? Not only that he has kept our bodies, but he kept our souls in the giving of his son. That in any time, any circumstance, any hardship, or any leading, or any necessary leaving, we simply say, the Lord is leading us away. The Lord is the one that's doing this. And simply rest and relax in all of the truth of the sovereignty of God. You and I would be so much more comforted by that wonderful fact if we would look it in the face and behold it in truth and not simply have the sovereignty of God as a theological theory or suspicion, but a rule for life. You go on and in verses 24 through 34, we find that only fools believe that they can overthrow God's will. And so in this section, we see this uh, plan that Jonathan and David have hatched. It's brought to bear, carried out. Jonathan then goes and meets uh, with his father Saul and is in the court David himself out in the field. And we're told some interesting things uh, about uh, this occasion. But I simply want to say that the occasion that we're told that it's held upon, the one that's been spoken of several times, is uh, the, the celebration of the new moon. What is that? Uh, it is a, a monthly celebration of the passage of a lunar cycle. That's as simple as that. It's an ancient thing in the ancient world. The Bible doesn't necessarily encourage us to it, but it is part of the ancient culture uh, of the people of Israel. In fact, the Apostle Paul says those things have passed away. Those things are not present in uh, the life and the practice of the people of God today. But the practice was that once a month, people would make sacrifices on this celebration of the new moon, and they would sit and eat and Uh, King Saul is no different than the rest of the people of Israel. After all, David wants to go and to be with his family. They're going to make a sacrifice. They're going to have a meal. Uh, They're going to celebrate uh, this specific holy event, this religious uh, celebration. So it's normal. It's regular. The question is, does it happen 12 times a year? I'm not certain. Maybe it is the case, maybe Other biblical readers or even commentators have evidences of it. Whenever I asked the question, I found no answer other than they did it. Does it happen 12 times? I'm not certain. But it is a normal occasion nonetheless. And what we find is 
Well, in the way that the Bible talks about this, verse 25 is that the king sat on his seat as at other times. So it is normal, it's regular, it's expected. Is he in the place where he's always in in his court? I think so. But then we have a qualification, and I, I think this says something about the man, about not only that he's sitting on his seat, but where his seat is. Okay? He says that, that uh, Saul sits on his seat, as at other times, but that his seat is by the wall. That it's by the wall. Uh, if you've ever been around uh, men who have spent a portion of their life in the military, uh, you may be familiar with the simple fact uh, that men who have done that don't generally put their backs to doors. Uh, they like corners. They like solid structures. Uh, they like the security of it, to know simply that no one's behind them with a weapon to be placed into their back. And it seems like there's a little bit of this. and That would certainly fit with who Saul is. He's a very suspicious man. He's afraid. He's, he's dominated and motivated by fear. And so here he is placing his seat up against the wall. I could be over-reading that. I don't think I am. I, th- I think that this is recorded uh, specifically uh, to give us a sense of the character of Saul uh, at this time in the history of Israel. We also read that Jonathan sits opposite and Avner is uh, sitting by Saul's side. This is his mighty man. This is not... Uh, uh, you know, a, a reckless or haphazard comment. Uh, Avner is, is his defender. He's his sword man, if you want to think of it in that way. And we read, of course, that David's place is empty. After all, he is in the field, afraid for his life of King Saul. And we read that, uh, verse 26, Saul didn't uh, say anything as he first noticed the empty seat of David. However, he did think something has happened to him. Other translations, there must have been an accident. He is not clean. Surely he's not clean. What's that even meaning? Because if you have a translation that says uh, something uh, has happened and there could have been an accident, you may think Saul is hoping that David has fallen by some other means. But, he says, he is not clean. Surely he is not clean, indicating spiritual uncleanness. The sort that you'd read about in Leviticus 7, 11, or 15. That David has come in touch with um, a dead body. Or maybe David has come in touch with, with pigs. And so he's made himself ceremonially unclean to sit at the table and to eat the sacrificed meat. If he ate the sacrificed meat as an unclean man, he himself would be at odds with God and justly deserve the wrath of the Lord. So Saul is guessing. He's not here. He must be unclean. He must be afraid to take the meal. What would a person do? They would cleanse themselves ceremonially to the repair of this uncleanness. And on the second day, should be fine to then come again. But second day comes and passes. There is no David. And yet Saul looks to his son and asks, inquiring uh, about David's um, whereabouts. He says, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? And then Jonathan answers as they have planned. Oh, he's with his family. They are celebrating this feast as well. His brothers requested of him that he would come and have the meal with them, that they would celebrate it together. And so he asked, leave of me. Verse 30, Saul sees right through it. And it's his anger and his rage uh, that drives him uh, to explode like a volcano, really. 
Because there is nothing here that isn't over the top, okay? We read that Saul's anger was kindled against whom? Jonathan, his prince, his son, his heir. He goes on and says to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. That is an Old Testament way to curse someone. It is a very poor thing to say in that time, and trust me, uh, it is very poor to say to people in this day. Now, had he said, you son of a perverse and rebellious man, oh, how accurate could he have otherwise been? He says, do I not know that you have chosen or allied? That word could be translated. Do I not know that you have chosen or allied with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? He's saying, you have cursed your mother's womb. This is the language of disowning his son. It is really terrible. He's saying, this is to your shame that you would go and bond with David. This is to your downfall. This is so that you never have the crown upon your head and never sit upon the throne of Israel. Do you not know this? You have disgraced your mother's home, her nakedness, as we read here in the scripture. Verse 31, we have the telling verse of the soul of Saul. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Saul hasn't learned a thing. David has been delivered, not only from the Philistines, but from his hand time and time again. And here, once again, even knowing, even seeing, and experiencing the successes of this man kept by the Lord, whom he has been afraid of, as the scripture tells us, because the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, nonetheless... Here is the fool in his heart saying, bring him here, I will absolutely and surely kill him. It is an absolute and silly thing. Saul thinks that he can overthrow the will of God. It is not only that he thinks David is in the hands of the Lord, he has experienced it and then he says, with the fool's anger and rage, I will do what I want. And he beats his chest as a wicked and a perverse Man, he's a fool. Absolutely ignorant and foolish before the Lord. Whenever I was thinking on this, there was a quote from the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon. God and man are always quarreling because God refuses to submit to the wills of men. That's what we have here. Saul, angry at the Lord, angry at the Lord's anointed, because in every circumstance, God will not let Saul do what he wants. God will do what he wills, not what Saul wills. And so, friends, what I have to say about this is simple. We should learn from the poor example of Saul. We should see this foolishness and we should be a people that simply understand the Lord's going to do what us with us whatever He wants. 
He's going to do it today, tomorrow, or the next day. In every circumstance, His will absolutely will come to pass. It will not be lifted. It will not be submitted to us. But we ourselves ought to submit to it with every energy that we have. With great and wonderful effort, we should be a people that bow our knee and simply say, Not what I will, but what you will, O Lord. O Father, your will be done. That's how we ought to be a people submissive to a God who is so mighty that he holds planets in their orbits and rotation. And he will not be spun around by finite creatures that pale in comparison to the greatness of the heavens, even if they bear his likeness. You go on and in this passage through the end of verse 34, you have the account of the departure of Jonathan, it seems, as could be well imagined, a fight over a meal. The son slams his hands on the table, stands up, having fought with his father, tears in his eyes, and says, I'm done, and he leaves. And so that is what he did. Offended, as he should have been, by his father. Slandered, disgraced, and disowned, he left the table. Because Saul had taken the only one who possibly could, who possibly could hold his throne and disowned him before his entire court in a circumstance that made even his own birth and his right to the throne be put in question. You go on and in verses 35 through 42, we find that there is so much comfort in the sovereignty of God. You see, in these verses, we have that plan of communication between Jonathan and David. It's carried out. We read in verse 35 that in the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment he had with David. And he took with him the little boy that we've already read about, this servant, uh, Jonathan. He tells the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. Terrifying. And whenever the boy came to the place of the arrow uh, Jonathan had shot, he called out to the boy and he said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. The answer to David is, Danger is upon you. You should leave. The Lord has ordained your departure. And then the urgency of the moment is there shown to us, as Jonathan says, even more than he told David to expect. He's not talking to the boy. He's talking to the coming king. Hurry. Be quick. Do not stay. As if he said to David, danger, danger, danger. Again and again and again. The boy goes, retrieves the arrows, and then comes and returns them to Jonathan, his master, and then is sent to the city, unaware of anything that had happened. And so we see the dynamic of this covert, secret communication uh, between Jonathan and David. And so here's Jonathan remaining behind. David comes out from behind the stone heap, and he falls to the ground and bows to this prince of Israel. This threefold bowing. It's homage. It's him respecting him. 
It's him showing to Jonathan royal honor. And there is so much sincerity to it. And it seems as if all of the desire for a covert communication just goes right out the window. It doesn't tell us where they meet each other. Do they run together, how this happens, or anything. However, we know that they do find one another. That there is sincerity put on display. And the grief of their souls being then shown one to the other. As they are weeping and have kissed one another. With David being so overwhelmed by the grief of leaving his friend that he weeps the most as it's recorded here for us. The picture is clear, profoundly clear. The sort of kiss that Moses gives to Aaron in the time of his ordination. This is the love of brothers being ripped from the fellowship of one another. And it is painful. It's grief. That's why you read of David bellowing and weeping even more than Jonathan. So where's the theology on display here? Well, it's in verse 42. Jonathan says to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring Forever, He repeats the covenant. But it's not the covenant in abstract. It's not, I love you so much, I will never forget you. You are my dear friend and my heart will never be taken from you. He has full reliance on the Lord to sustain their love and their friendship between them. We swore both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you. The Lord shall be between my offspring and your offspring forever. He doesn't have comfort in the resolve of his love or his affection. He has comfort in the sovereign hand of his God. That's where his comfort comes from. That's this wonderful fountain that can allow Jonathan to simply say, go in peace. This isn't the end. You go wherever you have to go, David. You do whatever you have to do. You stay safe, David. The Lord will keep us. The Lord will be between us. The Lord will bring our sons also into wonderful fellowship. And the enmity of my father will be put completely to nothing. That is the picture. It is God's sovereign hand. And again, Jonathan doesn't know how. He doesn't know when. He also doesn't even know why. But he simply knows that the Lord is good. And that he loves them. And they swore by him and for his own glory. Out of a love for the Lord. And a love for one another. And so that's why we can read the very end. That comforted David Rose. And he departed, and that Jonathan went into the sea. It's as simple as that. The sovereignty of God is filled with comfort for God's people. It doesn't matter if it's the breaking of fellowship of two friends, as our church knows all too well. It doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter the distance, oceans, nations, mountains, rivers. 
whatever. It is the character of the sovereign God. I know that if I say goodbye now, I will see you again. It doesn't even matter if we stand at the edge of a grave. With life and death separating us, there is simply the assurance that the Lord lives. And likewise, so shall I with every faith in the God of heaven who can do all things and who does all things well. May our theology impact the way we live. May the things we believe help us understand the things we endure. Help us to be a people not blown about by every different attack of this world, but a people comforted by the character and the person of our sovereign God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you for your illimitable power. Lord, you have not a short arm. O oh Lord, you are absolute in your knowledge. O oh Lord, you are good and your word is truth. And the things that you have promised to us, you keep. O oh Lord, all of your covenants have as their end the great fulfillment of all that you have promised. O oh Lord, there is always a yes and an amen. O Lord, you sustain us in this life and in every blessed relationship that you have given to us. And Lord, we pray that you would give us strength to view you in the midst of all the things that we experience so that we are not a weak and a battered people, but a people filled with faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.